Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is bright and early, at least on the Pacific Coast, on uh, Monday, October the 31st, the last day of October 2022. We've done a number of shows recently on uh, the music industry, on the history of rock and roll, one with the uh, distinguished music biographer Bob Spitz on uh, Led Zeppelin, very famous British rock and roll band. Uh, also did one a couple of weeks ago with Simon Morris on the uh, life and works of Stevie Nicks. Morrison uh, teaches at Princeton University. It's more of a kind of academic story. His book, Mirror in the Sky, the life and music of Stevie Nicks. There always seems to be something fictional in many ways about the history of rock and roll. It's uh, it's hard to believe many of the stories and the narratives, so it's appropriate that some of the books we've dealt with have indeed been novels. One with Emma Brody, the author uh, of a new novel, very good new novel, and Songs in Ursa Minor, uh, a fictional recreation of the love affair between two more iconic rock and roll artists, uh, Joni Mitchell and James Taylor at the end of the 1960s. And there's certainly something fictional about the subject of our show today. Charles Robert Watts was born into the English working class or lower middle class in 1941. And of course, he's become one of the most iconic musical figures of the, uh, of the last uh, century as a member of the Rolling Stones. There's a new book out about it, an authorized biography, for better or worse, Charlie's Good Tonight by my guest Paul Sexton, The Life, The Times, and The Rolling Stones. And Charlie is joining us from South London, uh, Sutton, where he informs me that the Rolling Stones performed, what, in 1962, Paul? How old were you then? <laughs> Two years old, Andrew. I just missed it. Uh, yeah, 62 and 63, um, both immediately before and immediately after Charlie's arrival in the band. When they finally got their man, um, they played at a uh, a pub. Uh, did a lot of gigs on in South London in general in those early days, and uh, a lot of them were at a venue called the Red Lion um, in Sutton, which is now not uh, still there, but not going by that name. And uh, I went in there a few years ago just to see if they had any awareness of their own history, and there was nothing. They, had, they didn't appear to even know that the Stones had ever been there, so that yeah. was kind of funny. But Sto uh, Charlie and the Stones would have played there quite a few times in, in those early days. Yeah, and wasn't the famous meeting between uh, Jagger and Richards, didn't it take place in South London on, on the railway? They bumped yeah, that's right. I mean, other, uh, on, a, on a railway train. That's right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, most of their early history is, is kind of uh, in the South. Although Charlie himself, of course, grew up in North London in Wembley. Um, so yeah, they were kind of scattered around, but if you look at their gigs, uh, and the whole history in those early days, and you know, the, even when they started getting gigs in London, um, it's, uh, it, 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 there was more sort of a South London base to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think David Bowie was from, or maybe from Kent, certainly a South London quality yeah, of right. history. There's a new book there, maybe, um, 
pull for you. <laughs> South London in the history of rock and roll. I, I saw a film yeah, recently, the film about Leonard Cohen, very good film, Hallelujah, mm. which revealed his intimacy with one or two journalists. How close were you to Watts? You, 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 you've written the authorised biography. You're close to the family. They must like and trust you. Did you spend much time with him? I did, yeah. Um, I interviewed him for the first time in 1991. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's strange, as, I guess, as a, as a music journalist, a freelance journalist, you, you know, you never necessarily expect to get asked back. But that's what has continued to happen each time uh, the Stones have had something new out or in, in recent years, even something old out again, you know, lots of reissued stuff. But uh, I just, you know, interviewed him that first time and then just kept getting asked back by both by him and by the band for uh, any number of projects. And that's gone on ever since, really. So I, I would have met Charlie on, I, I think I made it about a dozen occasions. Um, and I certainly wouldn't pretend that we were close friends. You know, it's, it, it, as often in doing what I do, it was a, it would be a working relationship. But um, I did actually, one of the nice things, and I didn't put it in the book because it would be far too self-indulgent, but I found out while I was um, researching this book that so apparently I was one of the the, the, the few people that the few journalists that he could at least tolerate because you know he wasn't the most willing interviewee uh, you, yeah you know. he was uh, I'm guessing he was pretty shy and yeah a very private man you know and so uh, the whole family so that's been the, the, the joy of, of doing this is that um, even though I knew just about everybody in the Stones sort of camp and the band themselves and so on from all of those meetings um, I didn't know his family until I started on this and uh, they were so gracious and um you know they're they're as private as he is really yeah um, he yeah, is very strong it's one of the really nice things about him is he is a very in contrast with so many of the other iconic figures from the history of rock and roll yeah very strong family man and we'll talk about that a little later mm. uh, paul it seems like the the two most enduring exports or uh i don't know achievements of britain which is a country in profound decline over the last hundred years has been the royal family and, and rock and roll. I wonder if there's a, a royal quality to somebody like Charlie Watts. I mean, sure, he was a good, uh, uh, sure, he was a good uh, drummer. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And we'll talk about it. But most of his life is most of his life is lucky. He got lucky meeting Jagger and Richards um, and he the rock uh, and he got lucky I guess being part of this remarkable band, I know he had some association with the royal family. In terms of your dealing with him, did you have to treat him like royalty? Is there a royal quality to uh, to, to the Rolling Stones and to Charlie Watts in particular? I would say no, and certainly in Charlie's case. I mean, obviously you treat them with a great deal of respect, but uh, I think because of his his, they they really were working class origins. Um, yes, he was, uh, you know, he, he, he's somebody who made good and, and was proud of, of that and was not shy of or at all apologetic about uh, his, uh, you know, his, having made money out of, out of what he did. But he, you can't stress it too much, really, just how down to earth this bloke was, you know. Um, you couldn't pay him a compliment. He didn't really rate himself that highly as a, as a drummer. So, um, you know, much as you would either try to say nice things about him face to face or just relay things that other people have said, including other members of the band, Keith is in particular, um, he wouldn't take it. You know, he would just sort of deflect it and bat it away like that. So no, he, he's not somebody that would have taken kindly to any kind of um, de de deferential treatment, you know? The book is called Charlie's Good Tonight. Um, he was a very, very good drummer, of course, uh, yeah. Paul. His, 
His origins was in jazz and the, the stories that you tell and, and many others have told suggest that he wasn't a big fan of, if not the Rolling Stones, the music of the Rolling Stones. How good a drummer was he? I mean, in, in the pantheon of rock and roll drummers. Well, in a way, the you know, the, you sort of pick up on the question because he wouldn't really consider himself to be a rock and roll drummer. Um, I mean, you're quite right that he, um, jazz was his first and only love, really. Actually, no, not his only love, but his main love. You know, he was a big fan of classical music as well and 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 soul music, which we can maybe talk about. But um, he certainly wouldn't ever have listened to the Stones' music. Uh, he would always say this, you know, his his wife, Shirley, his beloved wife of 57 years, Shirley, was a, was a fan. You know, she would play the records um, at home, but he never would. So it, the only time he really heard them and enjoyed the, the work was when they were in the studio making those um, those records. Um, and then you get into this kind of uh, conundrum, really, because he comes he comes into the Stones from, you know, being a jazz fan and and being on the really the kind of burgeoning R and B, you know, rhythm and blues circuit in the UK in the early sixties, playing with people like Alexis Corner, you know, the ever underrated kind of um, uh, star maker, really, of, of that uh, of that genre, um, and. Uh, you know, much as what you said, you just mentioned the idea of Charlie being lucky to, to meet Mick and Keith. I think that, you know, that they would actually put it the other way around. Keith certainly would, you know, that they yeah. felt extremely lucky to have, to have well, got. What him. is it about uh, uh, Keith? I mean, he's probably the most iconic of all the, uh, the, the members of the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger wouldn't agree. But to me, is his book, um, Life, I think, is Life, probably, yeah. probably the best book on rock and roll, certainly written by a rock and roll um artist hmm. there was an important richards couldn't have been richards without charlie watts is that fair that yeah there, there was something about the way in which watts played the drums which allowed richards to become richards could you explain that yeah i mean it's very interesting plotting the history of that and going right the way back and actually quoting from keith's book in one or two places i'm sure you remember he he quotes from his own diaries uh keith you know in in the in his early years and it's completely yeah genuine. it's a wonderful it's, book i mean it yeah, really, yeah. And this is, this is it the confirms sort of what everyone both wants and fears about uh keith richards yeah it does. Yes. And I mean, I've interviewed, you know, I should say, you know, I've interviewed all, all the bands so many times. I mean, Mick and Keith even more times than than, than Charlie. And um, I mean, Keith is a fantastic storyteller. I think as we've gone along, it, it would be fair to say he wouldn't necessarily even be offended if I was to say that some of his stories have, you know, traveled a little distance from the, from the, the truth, perhaps <laughs> in more recent years. But in such an entertaining way that it kind of doesn't matter. You know, I mean, he tells such a brilliant story. Um, and when he, whenever he talked about Charlie, I, I've got to say in 20, 25, I don't know how many interviews with him over the decades, he, he, he would have, he definitely mentioned Charlie in every one of those. And he described him with quite a degree of awe. You know, he couldn't ever quite believe that he got to play with somebody as fantastic as Charlie and almost to the point of hero worship, you know, among friends, um, so that was fascinating to see. And then, as a, like I say, if you re relayed that to Charlie, he would just go, you know, that'd be silly kind of thing. But, um, yeah, there's something about the way that Charlie played and, you know, the way Keith described it. timing, was, isn't it? The, yeah, yeah, that's right. It, and, gave, and the early it, days, it enabled Richard's work to really prosper mm, and flourish. And the whole band, you know, and uh, not speaking as a drummer or, a, or as a musician. But I know that, you know, the, the, the unusual aspects of it was that because he came from jazz, he, I think, you know, people said that he played across the beat 
you know, rather than on it, which is would be the normal rock and roll style. And for all of the fact that he plays on and, you know, performs magnificently on some of the greatest rock and roll records ever made, um, you know, he was a generally speaking, with a few exceptions, he was a very unshowy drummer. You know, I mean, there's never any such thing as a drum solo anywhere near Charlie Watts, really. Um, and uh, he just exuded this kind of quiet, you know, assurance and energy, I think, if you listen to any of those things, with a really small drum kit, too. That's worth mentioning, you know, probably a, a seven piece kit for pretty much his entire career, as opposed to someone like Bonzo, John Bonham or uh, Keith Moon. Um, both friends of his, by the way, you know, he loved right. all Keith Moon had an unfortunate but... end and, and, and what's yeah. his life? I mean, was mostly pretty stable, but he had his his moments. So was it in, in the yeah. 80s or 90s? He had yeah, the a, 80s, yeah. a very um, uh, dramatic uh, uh, experience with drugs, mm. which almost put him under, right? He could have ended yeah. up as Keith Moon, with yes, Keith Moon, at least. That's right. I mean, it, it's so strange. And he, he was never able to, really to explain what happened to him. It's almost like, you know, somebody somebody else took over there for, for a couple of years, but that's all it was. I mean, this was in the mid eighties, about 1985 or so. Um, and it's definitely a lot of contributory factors. He, he later said to me that he thought it was a bit of a midlife crisis. He was 45, I think, at the time, 44 maybe. And um, his father had died a little while before. The stones were in a bad shape, you know, as, as bad as it got really. You, you remember that that's the period when, um, Mick and Keith were kind of at the height of the fighting, really, and uh, they made that Dirty Work album, which is most people's least favourite Stones record. Um, Mick chose not to tour it because he was making, you know, had done his own solo deal by then. Um, but it's interesting, actually, to get, you know, another side of that story because, uh, that you know, the, the school of thought has always been that Mick was the bad, the baddie in that, you know, and, and that um, he endangered the Stones by not touring with them. But the fact is that, you know, the rest of the group, Charlie included, were in bad shape at that time um so it's worth everyone was in bad shape uh yeah. Yeah. in the uh, in the 80s if you remember yeah, yeah uh, you present right. and and again this is i don't think there's anything groundbreaking news here but you present him as a, a savile row man he was obsessed mm. with how he looked yeah um he always had style and it came out in his drumming um and he seems to observe people and look at them in terms of how they dressed. Uh, mm. Keith Richards famously said he was a Savile Row man. He could have lived there. Yep. I said, and, and, and Keith Richards said to him, why don't you marry a tailor? There's That's something very me, yeah. external about him, which again, underlines the fact that he's a bit of a mysterious figure. One, yeah, one wonders right. what was going on inside his head. I mean, is it yeah. possible to conclude that not much, that he was just a man who was obsessed with how he looked and how he played the drums. And he got lucky playing for the Rolling Stones and they were lucky about him, but he wasn't a very interesting man. Oh, I think I would dispute that. I mean, there was a lot of depth. You to have him. to, you've just written a book about him. So I would yeah, take that. He didn't, uh, you know, the thing about Charlie was he, 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 he's so unusual because he just didn't display this stuff. He, he, he was very um, comfortable in his own skin, Charlie. He just didn't ex um, emanate any of those usual kind of qualities that you associate with rock and rollers uh, which is self-importance and loudness and and all those other things you know he he was perfectly comfortable uh you know on his own or spent so much time on his own on the road you know and especially when it's yeah those are remarkable stories of how they would all go out and party and he was mm. there but no i take that and he's clearly a man of moral repute 
Mm. But he's an ordinary fellow. And what you and others have suggested is that he's unusual in his ordinariness. Is that <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he was an ordinary bloke who happened to get lucky and play for the Stones. As we say, they were lucky to get him too. But he maintained his ordinariness for 50 or 60 years during the... Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, these, this band is... I mean, he's no longer, unfortunately, with us, but this band is 60 years old. It's just astonishing. It is unbelievable. And, uh, you know, to, in the course of the book, as I was finishing it off, I, I, I got to see the tour, you know, the 60 tour twice, including on the first night in, in Madrid. Um, How ridiculous is, is it? I mean, to me, 80-year-old men dancing on stage is absurd. And yeah. talking <laughs> about, you know, shouting and screaming about satisfaction and other youthful pursuits what there is it about the stones that somehow captures the absurdity of life in the early part of the 21st century yes it's true in many ways it does i mean you know i i don't think i'm biased i think i can you are biased that's why you're on the show go on yeah but i can you know when you go and see them you've got to try and judge them by today's standards you can't you know it, okay maybe it is there's a lot you know massive amount of nostalgia there of course and they're not doing any new material um, I mean, when I saw him in Madrid, I think there was one song from the 21st century. And then by the time they got to Hyde Park, there were none. Um, but, you know, the, the, the fact is that it's still an extremely exciting spectacle. And Mick is doing an awful lot of the heavy lifting on that, of course. Although he said to me in the course of, uh, you know, we've had the recent chat for, for the book that he thinks that Charlie was the one who actually worked the hardest in that band. Because, you know, Mick would say he, he doesn't have to run from one side of the stage to the other. if He doesn't want to. But Charlie had no choice but to be on the beat for two and a half hours or whatever it was, you know, um, which he did in, with incredible um, reserves of, uh, of of energy you know especially for a quite a slight man um and those later tours did take it out of him for sure but uh he just retained that uh, that, that that quiet power i think you know right to the end the last last time of course being um in on the shows in around 2019 and coming back to this issue of the royal family and um and and and, and, and rock and rollers uh, you know he he was obsessed with how he dressed the other mm. thing that seems remarkable about him, that he bred horses. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that he had aristocratic pretensions. He lived in the countryside. Mm. Uh, he dressed like a lord. Uh, he, 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 by the end of his life, he was, for better or worse, an English aristocrat. He may not have yeah, had yeah, his, um... but he kind of bought into it, didn't he? Yeah, to some extent, that's true. Yeah, I mean, his um, his brother-in-law, Roy, said to me, uh, and they knew each other from very early days, uh, I never had the feeling that he thought that he'd sold out or, um, you know, was had changed in personality in any way. But I think most people were, were really just amused at the way that you'd go and visit Charlie and, and Shirley down in the country, and they lived in the big, the huge house in Devon for a long time. Um, but the reason for the size of that property was was basically so that Shirley could breed, breed horses. It was her passion. Horses were her passion, you know, before his. Um but uh, he, he, Roy would say, uh, you know, that you'd go down there and find him sort of acting like the, the Lord of the Manor kind of thing. He loved, he loved being at home because, you know, he was not a fan of, of travel, loved being on stage with the Stones, loved playing with them, loved the band, very proud of them, but didn't enjoy the, the you know, most of the paraphernalia around it and the, and the, the hard work of travel. So he, he, every time he would get home, he, he loved it. And then within two weeks, Shirley would say, tell him she, he was getting under her feet and get out and do something again so you know classic rock and roll thing in that sense wherever you're one place you suddenly want to be somewhere else you know and you yearn you know you flip-flop between the two we've done a, some shows about the politics of rock and roll we did one recently 
with the historian of the Arab world, Mark Levine. Uh, he has a really intriguing new book out, We'll Play Till We Die, about underground music in the Middle East. Also did mm -hmm. one with, recently with Jonathan Taplin. He's a tour manager for Dylan in the 60s. He has a book out, The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life, which was a very political mm -hmm. book about the rebellious nature of rock and roll. Do you think one of the reasons why the Stones have survived is because they weren't political? And they were never really that rebellious. I mean, maybe in a cultural sense, but they were yeah. always an act. And so they could act for 60 years. I suppose the rebellion was more in their private lives or, their, of course, not, not very private lives, wasn't it, in the, in the 60s especially. Um, I don't think they ever set out to be, uh, you know, sort of um, rebellious, really. It's, it, it, it came with the territory to some extent in, in that period in the 60s. You, you know, you can point to... Um, particular tracks in in as we get into that run of classic albums from the late 60s through to the early 70s um that that seem to represent the you know the increasing sort of uh, the, the coming darkness i suppose you could say you know of the of the period um but uh, I, I, a lot of that was visited upon them i i always feel i don't think they ever really set out so to, what did to... uh, you you've spent a lot of time with them and particularly with charlie watts you, you've written mm -hmm. this biography of him if you were to ask him not about his own drum playing, which he was quite shy about, mm. but about the significance of the Rolling Stones in cultural terms, how they changed the world, what would he have said? Um, he would have deflected that question and kind of said, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, seriously, he, it's not the sort of thing you would ever really engage him in, in, in conversation about because he, he, as I say, he didn't he didn't really believe in, in any of that, you know, or if he did, he certainly kept his own counsel about it. Um, Bill Wyman said in his book, in his Stone Alone biography, that he thinks that, you know, being in the Rolling Stones almost passed Charlie Watts by, <laughs> you know, that it was never something that he um, gave a great deal of thought to. And that might sound strange for somebody who was in the same band for, for uh, you know, 57 years or, or so. Um, but I think that's true. And it came through, you know, and I'm sure we're, we're, we're getting to this in in his jazz playing, the jazz records that he went on to make in um, in later years. Uh, surprisingly, he's, he didn't put his name on, you know, his own name on a record until the, until 1986, I think it was. Um, but the, the reason I make that point is that, that, that there was such a world of difference between a, co a conversation with Charlie about about the Stones and a conversation with him about jazz. You know, in, in the first one. Uh, how good at jazz? I mean... If he hadn't been in the Rolling Stones, you wouldn't have probably even encountered him. How good a jazz drummer was he in the history oh, of jazz? Do you think he, had he not met the Stones and pursued a career mm -hmm. in jazz, do you think mm -hmm. he would have become one of the great jazz drummers? I think he would be up there you know, among, the, you know, you could question whether it would have, whether the name would have traveled worldwide in, in, in quite the same way. But uh, he was very, you know, I, I can only take that, uh, you know, answer that by, thinking of, of the way that he was regarded by his peers, you know, in, in the jazz world and, and of course, in the rock and roll world. But, um, you know, he played with some real heavyweight uh, people. And, the, you know, the, those jazzers are not going to be swayed by reputation or, you know, by fame. I mean, if he didn't cut it, then he wouldn't be playing with them. And, and uh, I think he enjoyed the fact that as he, as he became more uh, successful, he was in a position to put these these bands together you know there's a point in that in the mid 80s right around the time we're talking about you know when he he had a bit of a personal descent but he put together that massive big band um to as a uh, tribute um for a tribute event to to 
Ronnie Scott's, the, you know, his beloved club where he spent so much time both playing and, and as, a, as a member of the audience in London. And uh, this thing was about 30 or 35 pieces, you know, and there's some real heavyweight people in, in, in that band, you know, whether it's Stan Tracy or Jack Bruce um, or a lot of up and coming young musicians at the time like Courtney Pine. Um, they don't suffer fools gladly, any of those people, you know. So Do you I think, think I mean, uh, most, most of our audience won't have heard of them. They certainly would have mm. heard of Charlie Watts. Do you think he, want, he wanted to be remembered? Did he have any care about his legacy? No, I, it, it honestly never once cropped up. I think, um, as I say, it comes back to the fact that he was, um, you know, pleased with, with, with what he had achieved, but he certainly didn't uh, wallow in it in any in any way. It's, perhaps to demonstrate that point, I'll just mention that, you know, when, when we started to discuss the book, uh, the initial idea was that it might possibly be an autobiography with me working with Charlie on it. Um, mm. And we kicked that around for a bit. And I know the idea, you know, reached him and he was not immediately against it, but it didn't ring true. You know, I, I, I always had the feeling that that wouldn't quite have worked because he simply would not have ever done it, you know, voluntarily. It would have, he, he would never be the sort of person to write about himself in the first person. And when you, when you spoke to him, um, you know, I'll, I'll say he wasn't, Ooh, I, I got the hang of it eventually, you know, after a while, but he wasn't the easiest of interviewees because he was very, his speech patterns were very sort of faltering, you know, and, and quite hesitant. And sometimes his brain and his mouth were not necessarily, you know, on. on yeah, I wonder if uh, he might have been, in contrast with a formal biography, he might have been a better subject, not that your book is, is, is bad in any way, but he might have been a better subject for a novel. I mean, he's sort of this weirdly fictional figure, a man who yeah. is so shy and 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 uh, self-defacing, and um, mm. and yet also one of the most famous musicians in the world. It's very odd. Yeah, I mean, a couple, of, a couple of people have said to me since the book came out that it should be a film, which is I find quite quite amusing. I'm not entirely sure I'm in favour of that because I, I don't know about you. I'm not. I'm not. I don't love the idea of um, you know people playing. Uh, real people in that way it is not often done that who well would play charlie watts well this is the trouble you see i don't i'm not sure i can think of anybody who could possibly do it it wouldn't be a musician i don't think um Let, let's end some... with his family uh, you you know and it's one of the most i think um one of the, it's one of the nicest things about his story is he was married for so many years mm. um to his w wife shirley which who he described as incredible Seem yeah. to have two love affairs in his life, or maybe if you don't include the the, the horses, one with his wife, one with his mm. daughter, uh, and with his granddaughter too. Yeah, um, he was really a he, he led a, a quite un, a quite un rock and roll life. It's astonishing, isn't it? It is, and that's what was so attractive about him, I think. You know, and uh, to. To, to talk to the band who who had known him for you know the better part of sixty years, and for Keith to say to me just a few months ago that uh, you know he that Charlie remained a mystery to him, and you think about how many day you know how much time they'd spent together in that time, that, that's quite revealing, I think. Um, and it, it, I just can't think of another example of that in the whole of rock and roll. He feels like the you know the he's almost the mystery stone, and how on earth you can be that way in a band of that magnitude is. Is, is quite an unusual thing, I think. Yeah, he's the other end of the spectrum from Brian Jones, yeah. who died, this troublemaker, yeah. troubled, troubled individual. Troubled. Yeah, that's right. Or well, somebody, you know, that exactly good comparison because there's someone who had a, you know, had a sweet side to him. They all said this about Brian, that, um, you know, he 
He was very intelligent. He could be sweet as anything. But then there was another side to him and it got worse the more famous he got. You know, he just went completely out, out of control, really. And um, Charlie said to me that they did, to some extent, they saw it coming, you know, when he when he uh, uh, departed. Um, well, but yeah, the two sides are rock and roll, eh? Yeah, one on side and, and that's to be celebrated is the story of Charlie Watts, which is now an authorized biography by Paul Sexton. Charlie's Good Tonight. It's a great title, by the way. Spence uh, <laughs> fans will know the reference. Was, it, was it Mick or Keith? Or they said it simultaneously. Uh, it was Mick. It was Mick on uh, Get Your Yaya's Out in between two tracks. He's just, uh, it's, a, it's the Madison Square Garden recording in 69, I think. And yeah, yeah throwaway comment. Which Charlie's is, Good Tonight. Charlie's Good Tonight, any. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder one day uh, whether uh, they will. Do you think that it's possible that they will, um, when Char, when Keith and uh, Mick are eventually depart, will they, mm. will they get back together in heaven? <laughs> oh yes, that's that rock and roll supergroup idea, isn't it? Why not? You know, I mean, the, the, the grim alternative to that is that we're going to be watching avatars of them, isn't it? In years to come, which uh, I think I'd rather, I don't know, the Beatles. Anyway, interesting story, a very interesting conversation. Charlie's Good Tonight by Paul Sexton. It's just out for rock and roll fans, uh, Rolling Stones fans in particular, but anyone interested in the life, the times and the Rolling Stones of, of, of an iconic figure. What else would you, are you reading these days, uh, Paul? What other books well, do you enjoy? It doesn't have to be music, but I know no, you're no, a, although a there's one, um, there's a couple of things that, that uh, occurred to me, Andrew, uh, both of the very sort of British themes. Um, I don't know how many of your audience would be aware of a British band, still, still very much with us, uh, but big part of the sort of pop, uh, you know, modern rock pop scene of the late 70s on was called Squeeze. Um, their lyricist, Chris Difford, I've got it here, actually. He wrote a lovely book a little while ago called Some, Some Fantastic Place, which is his kind of his story um but it's again it's some par some parallels with charlie in a way because he's he's you know he's disarmingly honest about his um you know number of ups and and many many downs in his life um uh, an unusually revealing rock and roll book uh, about his motivations um the other one i mentioned is one is is the next one i'm looking forward to actually just as a sort of rock and roll you know nerd i guess um uh, david hepworth has written the official history of abbey road um, which I know will be great. It's just come out literally a couple of weeks ago and um, celebrating, you know, that amazing British studio, which I've, I've done a lot of work with, uh, with Abbey Road too. So um, that's, that's going to be a goodie, I think.